Argument, a podcast for speech-language pathologists, audiologists, and the scientists who support them. A podcast where you'll come with questions and leave with more of them. A podcast by two people who love thinking and lively debate, but hate beating around the bush and baseless claims. Welcome to episode five, You Are Not in Charge of Your Own Brain. So for a podcast that's all about thinking and problem solving and CSD, we thought it best to move this episode up as soon as possible. Today, we're going to be discussing several topics that all circle around the issues of groupthink, manipulation, and control. We're going to discuss how common it is to send an entire group or subgroup of people like SLPs or audiologists down a path towards something that may or may not be evidence-based or may or may not be ethical. How people can cause thought and behavior change in us on purpose or unintentionally without us even realizing that it's happening and nobody is immune. I am not immune, ENS is not immune. But by discussing it and observing some patterns in human behavior and how this stuff kind of tends to happen, it's possible to gain back some control because we're also going to discuss how recognizing these things can help us to not just float downstream, but instead make more intentional and informed decisions about which way we want to swim and when, so that perhaps we can be more in charge of our own brains. I love this. I'm so excited to talk about this with you. I am on fire. I know this is one of your favorite topics. This is one of my favorite things to discuss with you. (laughs) And can I make a prediction now? Go for it. I predict that we are going to come to the conclusion, or maybe I'm planting a seed. Maybe I'm trying to control your brain right now, Meredith. (laughs) (laughs) I predict that the people who will find this kind of podcast exciting are going to be the people who are highly self-aware and love the process of introspection. The people who I think will not like it are the people who believe that they have themselves figured out. They don't need to spend time thinking about themselves. They don't have that much control over themselves. So what's the point in any of this anyway? That's that's my prediction. Yeah. No, I'm here for it. I like that prediction. <laughs> and also it's going to be uncomfortable. Like it's not necessarily going to feel good. You're not going to leave being like, oh, my world is simpler. You're probably going to leave this episode being like, ugh. <laughs> things are more complex than I realized. (laughs) Yeah, I think I said this before, but one of, and it's really sad, maybe it's a a insight into the craziness of my brain or the maniacal nature of it, which is one of the best evaluation comments I've ever seen after giving a gazillion talks was when somebody simply wrote, I am dumb. And it sounds so bad. It sounds so bad. But I just know that they had that rock bottom moment. And I've had it so many times. I continue to have it where I'm just like, God, I don't know anything. And that is after two days, they were so drained. That's all they could write. I am dumb. But you know what? That person has so much more to gain, so much more to gain because they had this moment of 
looking at themselves in the mirror. And I'm hoping we have a lot more people at the end of this episode who are like, they don't have to say I am dumb. <laughs> yeah, but they have yeah. to say, God, I thought I, I thought I had more control over what I was decisions I was making. Maybe I don't. Yeah. Can you think of an example of a time where you got yourself into something and once you started to learn more, you immediately had that feeling of like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I, like the, I'm way, I'm, I don't know any of this. Yeah, I 100% knew that that was going to be my world when I started in science. And I thought that research was very straightforward. And they said yes or no to a phenomenon, fact or fiction. And I realized very quickly, the last thing you ever want to say in front of, in front of a bunch of scientists is, therefore, I have proven, or the truth is, talk about getting your butt whipped. Don't ever do that. And I was like, but isn't that what we do? And they're like, that's the opposite of what we could ever, you don't have any ability to make such a claim. Even if you have everything you think, there's always something you don't know. You have to fill your study with as many limitations as potential claims. And it was those moments where I kept saying, but what are we here for? Aren't we supposed to say that this is real knowledge? This is truth. This is what we should be anchoring things on. They're like, no, absolutely not. And you should be skeptical of anything you read that has such strong claims or anyone you talk to, because it indicates they don't understand how complicated this issue is. What about you? That's, yeah, that's not the path that I was going to go. I, I was thinking more along the lines of like recent things. Like I was trying to think of a recent time where I was like, I can handle this. This will be easy for me. I like, I know how to do this. Um, for me, the most recent thing was dog training. <laughs> like I was like, everybody has dogs. How damn difficult can it be to train a dog? Like I, I also understand like principles of, you know, behavior, you know, it kicked my butt. It was so freaking difficult. I ended up having to hire a dog trainer to help me because like it just was, I, I thought it would be easy. I thought I would be able to handle it. But as I continued to try, the more I realized that I didn't know and the more I realized that I was like working against myself in a lot of ways and kind of like screwing it up in ways that I just couldn't see in the moment. That's So that's my most recent time of feeling like I I can't do this. This is hard for me. Well, you're more involved, evolved than I am because I we our family had our first dog three years ago and he was a puppy and we failed, but we actually had a puppy trainer and we still failed and we ended up not keeping him, giving him to another home or something like that because I, I just... And to this day, the reason I say you're more evolved is because I still think, well, maybe we just weren't a good fit. But I think it's all my fault. <laughs> the, the dog trainer. <laughs> I'm not self-aware. I'm not self-aware when it comes to that one thing. I'm like, I need a dog who is dumb and just wants to smile at me. That was the problem. <laughs> he was too smart and you were not prepared for that. Yeah. He was too smart. Yeah, that's what the that's dog right. trainer told me when I met with him. He was like, anytime, you know, you're having dog issues, it's pretty much always the human being's fault. And I'm sure that's the case. 100%. All right. Well, how shall we continue? Our cognitive biases make us easily duped. Is that what we want to start with? Yes, I, I think we have to start with that. Just how we're naturally drawn to things that feel good in our brain. Like one example of that is how we're going to be naturally drawn to simple explanations for 
complex things. There's a lot of things in our field and about our patients and about their disorders and about their brains and anatomy and physiology that's highly complex. But oh, how good do those simple explanations feel? And so so when someone gives us like a simple path to go down, it is going to be highly tempting to take it. Even sometimes if there's a little thing in the back of our head that's saying, I wonder if this is accurate or not. I wonder if it's evidence aligned or not. I wonder if it's right or not. Sometimes that simple thing just feels so damn good. That's the beauty of cognitive biases, in my opinion, is that it turns into shortcuts that we all make to simplify our thought processes. But the problem is that we get led down a path where we start to believe that things that are actually probably irrational make sense. And so we start to collect evidence around that and we never collect disconfirmatory evidence because we want to think we've learned something and every single human does it. There is not a human who doesn't. We don't do it all in the same way, but we all do it in certain ways. Yeah, for for sure. And some of those simple explanations are hard to get rid of because we just keep searching for more evidence to confirm that the simple explanation has some truth to it so that we can hold on to it in some way. A good example of this is the explanation of dyslexia as a visual thing. Many years ago, it was more common for people to think that dyslexia is due to reversal of letters, right? Like, oh, people with dyslexia, when they look at the letters on the page, it's a visual thing. They're just seeing the letters backwards, which is what makes reading so difficult. And there's a lot of, you know, people out in the world that still believe this. SLPs don't because they know better, right? But even SLPs are still holding on to elements of dyslexia being a visual thing. Like at the informed SLP, we continue to get emails all the time from people asking things like, do you all have any evidence for that new font that they came out with that's supposed to help kids with dyslexia read better? Like, is that EBP? (laughs) Or um, another one that we've gotten recently is, you know, those um, color overlays, those color transparencies that you can put on top of text so that kids with dyslexia can read better. Have you all seen any any evidence about that? I'm looking for evidence to help me figure out which color of transparency to be using. (laughs) And so sometimes these simple explanations stick around because they're so tempting and so easy, but they just morph into different versions of the simple explanation and we just can't get rid of them. Yes. And I would say that I'm going to guess here that the most common cognitive bias is probably confirmation bias among clinicians who are practicing who need to take quickly a set of signs and symptoms and make a decision and proceed from there. Because we can't always have objective outcomes for everything. And frankly, even standardized tests are biased. So you can have the number on the, you know, PPVT or something like that. But that does not describe the complexity of what communication is, right? So you have to take in much more than a number. And the same thing is with feeding. Feeding is a very complicated behavior, but we can sometimes go down to this tiny little thing and say, well, I can make a judgment about it. And that's why, in my opinion, anything, any phenomenon that humans are dealing with that is more mystical mystical in nature, confirmation bias is so much more a big part of the process than when it's not mystical in nature, right? So it's like, 
resurrecting somebody is not something people are really obsessed with these days. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, well, he's been dead for a month, but we have these ideas that if we do these dances, no, what do they say? They say, well, he's looking down at me from heaven and and he gave me a sign, but it's not this idea of I'm going to resurrect him. We go to the, the extension of it because we know that some things are just physically impossible. But in the clinical world, Confirmation bias is basically looking, using evidence to confirm a preconceived notion that you already believe. And your example, to me, is an extension of that, where if you already believe that because words are flipped or letters are flipped, that that's a problem, you're going to look for things that treat that problem, even if that's not what it is. So you're looking for fonts. Anything related to letters is going to be the answer. It can be boldness. It can be uh, back background color relative to something. It could be all those things because you've decided that's the case. And in swallowing, it's the same thing, which is those clinicians who do not have access to instrumentation to actually see the physiology of a swallow, what ends up happening is they have to use a little bit more crystal ball, a little bit more signs and symptoms because they can't confirm aspiration, meaning the bolus has gone into the trachea at the bedside. There are signs and symptoms. But if you walk in the room and somebody's coughing and you already believe coughing means stuff is in the trachea, all the other signs suddenly are apparent. Now that guy's voice, it's very wet and gurgly. Don't you agree? The guy sneezes and his eyes are a little bit watery. Oh, he's got wet, watery eyes. There you go. And you start like adding your list of things and you have a nice little collection. You have a nice constellation of symptoms that might have nothing to do with the objective thing you think you care about. But because your confirmation bias is so strong, you've now been led down a path with this cognitive bias that you have in your head that you had to have because your job demands that you decide, what can this person eat? You're so prone to taking all of these other non-confirmatory things that really can't confirm it and using them as confirmations when they might just be uh, coexisting phenomena. They might just be correlated and not causing anything. SLPs are forced to make a lot of um, fairly quick decisions and a lot of A versus B decisions, you know, disorder versus not, treatment versus not. And, you know. And, and then we can take it one step further, if you don't mind, which is you get to the next cognitive bias, which is your availability hur- heuristic, which is after some phenomenon has happened that was really salient, you end up thinking everything is related to that. So a good example is if you just watched Jaws and then you go to the beach the next day, a shark is going to get you so you don't get in the water. Like it really impacted you. And so if you have one patient, one patient for whom you said, you know what, you can be on a regular diet and you find out the next day that they had an obstruction, it might have had nothing to do with that. But now, oh, that's it. No one's getting applesauce on my watch, not in my backyard. And it's like you you then have this other cognitive bias uh, which is sending you down the path where you've now formulated this new worldview that it was because of that one thing that happened and you blamed yourself. And again, when the risks or the um, stakes are high and the ability to confirm and make rational objective judgment is low, of course, we go into these cognitive biases and we then aren't really in control of our brain anymore, are we? <laughs> For those of you who aren't familiar with, you know, all these different cognitive biases, because there are tons of them. Like we'll probably throughout this episode discuss a handful, but on the website, so at www.evidenceandargument.com under episode one, we link to a bunch of um, other websites that show you lists of these. So you can start to kind of learn them and explore them. And we can do the same thing for this episode as well. 
I certainly don't have them memorized. So if anybody's <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know these cognitive biases and biases, how am I going to be able to look for them when I don't know their names? Like, honestly, you don't really need to know their names. You just need to start to recognize that as human beings, we're naturally going to do things that make our lives easier and that make our decision processes quicker. But things aren't that simple. And I would say if you if people really want to drill home the most um, salient availability heuristic going on right now is with COVID, anyone who coughs has COVID. They don't have allergies anymore. They don't have anything else. And you see so many people saying, oh my God, I'm totally holding in my cough now in public because everybody looks at me crazy. And it's just, you know, this idea that whatever is going on, whatever the most immediate salient thing that's going on, it gets applied liberally to other things. If it can be recalled, it must be important. Like that's the rule. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's already happened this year in my house. So both my son and I get seasonal allergies. And we and we just the other week went through the allergies or COVID, <laughs> allergies or COVID yes. thing. <laughs> and we we also want our, you know, we're we want our lives to be easier, right? And so we're going to be looking for the, you know, straightest path to something that will make our lives as SLPs easier when we're going through treating people. And so we're going to look for convenient explanations for inconvenient things as well. You know, like a good example would be, so this is one that has really kind of like rocked the SLP world in the last year or two because of a couple really large papers that came out on speech sound norms. But in the schools, it's especially common for SLPs to hold off treating the more difficult to treat speech sounds, because some of them are honestly just kind of harder to treat and teach than others, like are, to hold off teaching them until like second grade or so, simply because it's really doggone difficult to get a four or five-year-old to, you know, produce R when it's already difficult for them. But a whole bunch of data came out recently that basically showed that we really should be looking at treating R around age four or five because most kids have it by then and there's no reason not to. And there's plenty of people who do treat R that early. But as soon as those papers came out, the SLP internet just went wild because we don't want to be treating something that difficult that early because quite frankly it makes our jobs higher it makes our caseloads it or it makes our jobs harder it makes our caseloads higher and makes our jobs harder and so you know there was all sorts of people being like the data's wrong the data's wrong the data came from australia and so it can't possibly be right even though it included studies of american kids as well you know and stuff like that it's tough to kind of part with some of that stuff, even when you have, you know, all these available bits and pieces of information in order to make a decision. A lot of times we still are going to naturally want to push away the ones that were like, I'm not sure I want to believe that because if I take that up and say that it's true, it's going to make my life a whole lot harder. Right. Well, I have one related to practice patterns among SLPs that I like to throw out and, um, I like to just wait for the pregnant pause as I hear it crash on the floor around people listening. And I'll often, it'll be an argument about why they can make decisions about what the larynx is doing without seeing it during a swallow. And I'll say, okay, what if that same stroke person had a voice problem? Do you treat that patient right away? Like, well, no, of course not. They need to be imaged. The larynx needs to be imaged first by an ENT. We don't know what's going on. Maybe they have nodules. Maybe they have polyps. I'm like, but that same larynx and that same patient for a swallow, you can make decisions 
at the bedside without and just by touching the neck. You can palpate your way to a good larynx. But somehow with voice, that same larynx and that same patient, you need you need and one is life threatening, guys, right? One is not. And then it's just like, you know, the the crickets and the tumbleweed. And the thing is that it's exactly what you're saying, convenient explanations. The issue again is it's convenient to say, but it's a different function. But really Logically, it makes no sense to think that you need to see it for some judgments. And the ASHA scope of practice is clearer. And why is that the case? It's because it's more available. We have a partner, a medical partner who's invested in it with the tools at the ready. There's no ENT department without scopes. So, of course, we made that rule. But then you move into something where we don't have it at the ready. It's like, well, we can sort of make it a little lax here because SLPs wouldn't be able to practice if they all had to have MBS. So suddenly the logic that was necessary for one thing is not necessary for the other. And everyone's just skating along, you know, like it's fine. But then when you point it out, it's like, well, that's true, but this is where we are. That to me is a great example of how circumstances dictate people's thinking more than the logic and the thinking itself to dictate the circumstances. Yeah. People have to have a certain level of comfort with being able to separate data and the evidence from their job circumstances. So it's a really, it's a really awkward feeling to be a school-based SLP with a caseload of 80 to know what the evidence says and know that there's a good chunk of it that you just can't do because there's not enough hours in the day. And I would assume that it's the same feeling for like an SLP working in a sniff where, you know, they have to deal with that awkward and uncomfortable feeling of like knowing the way it should be versus knowing what, you know, their daily barriers are. Sorry, I need to ask you a question about that. Do you think that it's more likely to happen in the clinical world or the research world? That type of the circumstances dictate what you end up doing. Do you think clinicians are more restricted? No, I think it's just as likely to happen in the research world too. The things that scientists study and the studies that they decide to embark upon are also some, oftentimes driven by what they can do within the confines of their lab what they're going to be able to get published quickly because they're up for tenure and promotion, what they can study and how they can study it just because of their lab environment or because their community environment or their university environment. Is that what you're asking? Is like whether or not the same thing happens to researchers? Totally it happens. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm so glad you said that because I hate this idea that that's not the case. And if you've reviewed papers, you've seen the same thing where, for instance, there will be a study that is commenting in my world at least on the integrity of a swallow and I'm like that's interesting I don't see any imaging in this study and it'll be you know electromyography on the submental muscles like muscles under the chin and when I reply and say do you think you can make comments on the intricacies of the swallow when you didn't well are it's not in the scope they're they're more sophisticated at getting around it they'll say it's not in the scope of the study but in future studies we intend to right but within the scope of the studies you make claims that the, the study could never actually comment on well that's because it's not it's not possible for us to have that tool that doesn't mean you get to say stuff about it just cuz it's not in your lab yeah yeah <laughs> so every it's like it's what she said everybody is trying to make claims that they are told they should be able to make without the supporting evidence 
to make them. And then when you point it out, sometimes it's received fairly and other times there are excuses that fly. And this is not just on clinicians at all. Oh, no. It's a human thing to do. Uh-huh. It's totally a human thing to do. And I always think it's so funny to observe, too, how people res- respond to it. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I, I feel like there's, like, different <laughs> characters of people with, like, how much they respond to it. Some people immediately put up a brick wall and, like, you're a terrible person for even, like, <laughs> like pushing this on me. And other people are like, yeah, you know, it's it's barrier barriers in my workplace like you know what are you gonna do about it and then other people want to correct it and other people just you know yeah it's tough so when you then I'll ask you this question further did you find that there was a point in your life in some kind of training maybe it was your clinical work maybe it was getting your PhD and maybe it was building your own business because they're all three very different processes right Did you find that there is a more humbling one among them where your tendency as a human being to not use your brain and let the circumstances dictate was more detrimental Uh, or less detrimental? Because those three to me are as distinct as you can get, eh? I was going to say, I'm going to tell you why I asked that question. And I think, and here's why I asked it. I think there's three things that we want to get at here, which is what you learn when you're training as a student and the proclivity of your department or your instructors to teach something a certain way, right? There is, so that's, you know, training in your program. There's also perhaps what you learn at the bedside or in the, uh, you know, on the carpet with whoever your clinical supervisor is and what they say. When I say the carpet, I think about kids for some reason. That might not make any sense. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If you get called on the carpet, that's quite different though, right? (laughs) But um, there's, there's the clinician being right when they give you information. There is training to get a research degree and the stakes associated with what those people, your scientific advisors, want you to understand about science. And then there's business and what they want to sell us. And my opinion is that the most aggressive and egregious that could perhaps be more detrimental is when a business doesn't get their point across as well versus when a scientist doesn't train as well as he or she could versus when a clinician doesn't train as well as he or she could, or versus when an instructor or professor doesn't get the class to understand as well. There are so many other areas where they can learn and grow, but in our field, there are so few businesses that push things in the direction of SLPs and AUDs to purchase. I mean, think about hearing aids. All we have are the hearing aids we already had that people sometimes keep yanking out because they don't like them. But what have we done? It's science moves too slowly to get beyond ever needing hearing aids, right? I mean, those things can't keep up with business. And sometimes my opinion is that businesses produce something that tries to get an immediate need because it's the desire of business. You can't always have slow burns, right? But with papers, as you said, you can whip out a low-hanging fruit paper while you do your five-year clinical study as well. But businesses have to have a little bit, you have to have capital sooner than later unless you know, you're know you from a very rich family. And I think that that plays into marketing styles that perhaps are viewed are different from a teacher, a professor, and what they want to get across and their learning objectives because teacher vows matter, right? And a scientific mentor, if you publish and your mentor says, you know, that was a shitty scientific mentor I had, don't work with that person, that plays, that's volumes. So there are so many areas. And frankly, in the clinical world, it's kind of hard to find out how much a patient is impacted by our services because we don't stick with them long enough to really know the outcome, right? And SLPs really aren't graded 
as much as professors and business owners are. And physicians. Yeah, <laughs> you can you can be a so-so SLP. And for the most part, a lot of you're, you like nobody knows. Exactly. Like nobody knows because nobody's nobody's grading your work ever. Right. So this is the beauty of this whole thing, which is you have business owners who want to sell to clinicians because they're the dominant buying market. It's not going to be instructors. It's not going to be scientists and it's not going to be students. And SLPs and audiologists aren't graded, as you said, and the businesses have something to sell. So that partnership can be a match made in heaven, hell or purgatory. And that's what we're here to talk about, which is when does this go really south? This not being in charge of your brain and not having the same accountability when the person trying to get you to do something has so much to gain. That actually was the thing that shocked me most about the business world once I started doing it. Because like you said, I moved from academia. I was at a university for 10 years. Then I was a full-time clinician for five years. And then I transitioned into owning a business. And each one gave me like a massive like smack in the face. The biggest like smack in the face I got moving from being a PhD to a full-time clinician was how incredibly difficult it was to know what was evidence-based because the number of things I was responsible for suddenly went from being very narrow to being super wide and just completely overwhelming. The biggest smack in the face and like, just like, just gut punch that I got working as a business owner was realizing like, oh shit, this is how information travels in our field. This is how people know what to do with clients. This is how people are making, you know, practice decisions where they're like, I wonder how I should treat this child with apraxia of speech. The fact that it was, it's so controlled by a small network of people all vying for power in the landscape. And, and yeah, it can go really, really well. And it can go really, really south where you'll see some bit of information go viral among SLPs. And you're like, oh, like slow down, slow down. But it went that way because um, of a business or person that wanted to put something out there and um, is basically capitalizing on good knowledge of marketing in order to make something just really stick with people. Exactly. And your experiences are exactly what I have gone through. I've taken a similar path to you. You start out as a student, then you do your clinical work, then you get a PhD, and now I have my own business as well. And it's such a different world when you're on the business end, because to this day, sometimes the things that sell, I'm so shocked by that. And then I'm like, oh, I see. I see what I did there. I made it short, snappy, and I put it on a meme and it got shared 300 times. But the other one that had a quote from a paper and a citation, it only got shared 100 times. And wow, I really have to make this very much um, social media friendly, very pop culture, very bright colors and very it has to stick so well that they find themselves. I know I've done a good job when people repeat my quotes back to me like they said it first. I'm like, wow, I, it just is common knowledge to you. It doesn't even matter who said it. It's traveled so far. They don't even know who the source was anymore. <laughs> That's when I know I've done a great job. Yeah, yeah. That that always blows my mind, too, is watching like those little, you know, like quotes or like um, three word or like five word phrases travel like crazy among SLPs. And you're like, I know where that came from. <laughs> that came from this source. And it just went, yeah, I mean, it's a really simple formula that you, well, I shouldn't say simple because it's not easy to tackle. It's straightforward. It's straightforward. Yeah. It's a really straightforward formula of capturing clinicians' attention, 
which basically starts at, you know, you need to have real estate among the, like within the SLP world, you need to be highly visible on social media, or you need to have money so that you can pay for ads in like the Asha Leader and at the all the conferences and stuff like that. So it starts with real estate and then capturing people's attention, offering them something that gives them hope that will make their jobs easier. So simple answers, things that make you a better clinician fast, all that type of stuff. And then just maintaining that over time Tables, flowcharts, bullet points, uh-huh. <laughs> not text and narration. You can't have five paragraphs in your post of just narration, unless it's not selling something, unless it's the fillers in between to show that you're so erudite and you're so smart. But you have to hit them with the here comes Barbie in, you know, kind of like commercial as well. You have to hit them with that dynamo thing because it doesn't sell otherwise. And here's a thing that's really interesting. I have seen some businesses that have such a really good product, but they just didn't get it and they just could market and nobody knows about them. A hundred percent. And I know, sorry, I was going to say, and I know other products that I'm like, why is everybody trying to, why is everybody talking about how much they love X? There's something out there that's so much better. And when you post it under that main thing, I love X product. And you go, did you hear about this? It actually does that and more for half the price. You're like, oh yeah, I'll look into it. Doesn't make a difference. No, doesn't make a difference because they've already been convinced with, yeah, the like shiny marketing of the other one. Yeah, I have a staff member um, who recently had a Zoom call with me because um, she's thinking about um, product creation for something. And basically her idea is incredible. It would be helpful to SLPs, extremely evidence-informed because she really, you know, knows the research and everything. She really understands clinical practice. But I told her, I was like, the thing that you're going to hate most <laughs> is the fact that it's not about how quality the thing is you're producing. It's about how good you can sell it. And I told her, I was like, you have to be ready for that. If you're not ready for that, you're just going to hate being a business owner. It's, it's the part that I hate most. It is the part that I hate most. <laughs> and I'll say, I'll say the rub of any person who has a background in science is putting in quality highly supported ideas that back the product and you got to hide it in there. It's almost like hiding broccoli in the Fruit Loops. Yes. So kids will eat it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's like, how do I get broccoli in these Fruit Loops right now? Tree Loops, they're little green trees. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, how do I do this? Um, and, And ultimately it doesn't make SLPs or audiologists dumb at all. We're human first. And then we got our degree. And by the time we became SLPs, we had been marketed to non-stop from toys to food to even the school you went to and the clothes you bought my one of my favorite movies is the devil wears prada and partly it's because i very much feel like a miranda um and i really hope one day i can achieve her hair but um the there are two things that she says and i'm just going to say the second one because the first one is so jarring and i i love it so much but the other thing is when um I forget now. She was in the Princess Diaries, the the main alley. I think Anne Hathaway. What? Yeah, whatever her name is. Yeah, Anne Hathaway. Yeah. So she walks in and she's laughing because they're trying to decide between these two belts that, in her mind, are identical. And they hear her chuckle, and the icy glare that Miranda gives her is like, "I'm sorry. Do you think this is funny?" And then she reads her all the way from east to west, and she goes, "Do you think you chose that blue sweater?" 
She goes, no, we chose that for you five years ago. And she goes through all the designers that called it Cyan, Cerulean, all these names. And you probably dug that out of some bargain basement bin at Jolene's Fabrics or something like that, or, you know, that kind of thing, Eileen's Basement. And you think you chose that sweater and you don't realize we chose that for you five years ago. And what she's saying is basically what Richard Dawkins said, because he coined the term, the meme, in 1976, which is the year I was born. So of course, I'm excited about that, which is the way that an idea or behavior spreads in the culture is that whatever it is has to be easy to remember, easy to understand, and easy to communicate. If you complete those three things, then you will 100% be more likely to end up with something that, as we say, goes viral. And it comes from the theory of evolution, which is the things that are still around after all these years weren't necessarily the smartest. It's not natural selection. It isn't just survival of the fittest. It is whatever could adapt to the environment best. You could be the squishiest. You could be the most likely to survive without water for, for a longer time. And that's why you're still here. And the same thing is with businesses. You have to figure out what is the thing that gets you to survive. And it's usually the memes. And packing that science or that quality into it is tough. That's where we have difficulty because our patients are the other end of what we're selling. We're not selling, you know, shoes that might fall apart, you know, flip flops that fall apart at the beach. That's not that bad. Yes. And in our field, the thing that's being sold is information, information that's then used on patients, on our clients. So it's not leggings that can pill or flip flops that can make your feet sore, not things where it's easy to see the product failure, but instead the businesses in our field are selling concepts. They're selling strategies in the form of a course or a three-day training you take or a handout or a set of worksheets sold on some website. And this information can be highly profitable, especially when it's sold in a way that capitalizes on our cognitive biases and on the shortcuts that we want to take, the corners we want to cut. And it can be very difficult to see problems with the information because how are you going to know? How are you going to know what's good versus what's not good unless you're highly knowledgeable about the thing you're getting training on in the first place? So it's really difficult. And it's also a huge responsibility for our field's businesses. And unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation or just mediocre information out there. And, and, and people are probably going to wonder, you know, how did we end up shifting over to our field's businesses from a podcast episode that was starting about, you know, you're not in control of your own brain and look at all these biases and everything like that. And it's because the point is that our field's businesses are the ones who have control over this. So when you go and look something up, so a lot of times SLPs have this like notion that like, oh, I'm going to go look up information on how to treat childhood apraxia of speech. And I'm gonna go straight to Google and I'm gonna Google treatment of childhood apraxia of speech. And they think that they're going to some place that has all of the options in front of them, you know, like, but it's not. The options that are in front of you are the businesses that have the most money and traction in order to get ads and websites put up at the top of the search results, right? Because who isn't going to, it's not, it's human nature to when you Google something to be like, oh, like the top five or six hits, those have to be the highest quality things. 
Not necessarily. Sometimes they are, but not necessarily. Sometimes it's just whoever is having the most success with selling SLPs the thing, the thing that's the solution to the problem that you have. And the problem that you have is I'm not sure what my options are for treating childhood apraxia of speech. And so like I like I I can't hit that home enough to SLPs the you know this this concept that it's people with I, this is going to sound terrible but it is terrible. People with money and power are the ones who are within our field are the ones who are putting the options in front of you and you have to be highly aware of the fact that you might be pushed down certain avenues simply because they want you to buy their products. And if we're being as forthcoming as possible, it's important to note as well that a successful business isn't inherently bad. Yeah, no. I mean, you can have high quality businesses that sell a great product and they're very well known. I mean, the Nike Swish is universal. Nike's not known for making crap shoes. I mean, athletes put those things on and promote them and try to get their own brand, their own version of it, because it's known, it's co- it's checked all the boxes, it's high quality. And just that emblem alone lets you know. And now we all say, just do it. I mean, they keep adding, or I want to be like Mike, like they just keep figuring it out, right? But I will say what's really interesting is that my assumption is that in our field, the things that are more standardized, because they have to be, tend to have less difference across the products. And here's what I mean. Departments are a business. CST departments are a business because universities are businesses. They all have to be accredited by ASHA. So they tend to look a lot more similarly to one another than other items that you can be very broad with. And the same thing would be with like endoscopes that you put into somebody's nose to see down their throat. You can't have some that are pipe cleaners and some that aren't. You can't have some that can't be clean and made out of fabric and some that the light gets so hot it burns the back of your throat. There is a regulatory board that is so stringent that that there aren't going to be that many scope products and they're going to be very similar. So the little things they can add is, well, we have the handle right under here where your thumb would be. So it makes the dexterity better or we've enhanced our quality of visuals. But other than that, the, the, the equipment itself, there are certain things that just cannot change because you will hurt people or people won't be trained in a standard way. And then there's the products that are in a different world. And I think you and I live there a little bit more, which is making not so much FDA devices there. That's the middle road to me, which is you can have devices that use um, research in a way that's explained to people at the FDA who wouldn't know any better. And the truth is perhaps the research isn't as clear as it could be. But then you have the completely different things, which is technically where I live, which is clinician training. I don't need to go through any training or any regulatory board or any FDA thing to create videos of the way the pharynx moves or to to use a video fluoroscopic image where I overlay what the muscles are so people understand I could overlay the wrong muscles and I rely on the community to tell me yes or no. But people are going to give me the benefit of the doubt, given my many years of studying this, that I probably have the upper hand, not just because I have the materials, all these images, but also because I've published on them. So hopefully I know something more. So the market decides, but I also have way more freedom on that end. And I think that's a fascinating thing that there are some things that I think you can just 
yank it off the shelf and get the cheapest one. And the quality, the lowest quality, is going to still be pretty good. And that's your Nike, your endoscope, right? And even with CSD degrees, I don't think you need to go to the most expensive university because we don't have a job security issue. Now, maybe you want to be more medical or more education or you want to work with that person. You spend a little bit more money to go to that school, but you don't have to go to the Ivy Leagues of CSD. But then when you get to the other things, and in my opinion, this is where we have an issue, and that is more of the ASHA training, uh, the CEU type situations because it's too hard to regulate every possibility because ASHA has to give people ample opportunities to learn because they need it for their jobs. But they can't regulate every single slide in my slide deck. They rely on people to go back to ASHA and report me. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. And that's why business owners like me rely on the people who are looking at what I'm talking about to ask me the tough questions, ask me the hard-hitting questions, test me, verify me, vet me. And if I don't know, I'm going to try to find out. I'm not going to give you all, that's the way it is, or ask somebody else, because I want to prove that my product is as good as possible. And that's where SLPs need to use their brains more, in my opinion. Yes. Vetting the possible resources and courses that they could take by simply asking questions. Vetting on the less standardized end of what we do, of the things we buy. Yes. Um, that's that's another thing I think people commonly misunderstand is they think that like this person is a registered ASHA CEU provider or this company is a registered ASHA CEU provider. Therefore, there's a stamp of approval on it. Well, there isn't really because it's mostly just a lot of work to become an ASHA CEU provider, like a lot of paperwork. Like you said, they they aren't going through, you know, every single little itsy bitsy thing that you teach people going forward, you know, throughout time. The business owner basically just signs on the dotted line, you know, like, have you considered the, you know, evidence for this course thoroughly? You sign your name and say yes, and it's a done deal. I also hate putting the onus on SLPs, though. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, think through that realistically. Well, it's not the onus. It's part of the responsibility, in my opinion. I would never say please vet me so I'm not an asshole, Yeah, (laughs) right? Right? I'm saying, please vet me so you hold me to the highest possible standards. Please let me know you're watching. Let me know that what I do matters because you will reject something or make me rethink something. Even if they come back to the same conclusion, put me there. For sure. But like the the point that I wanted to make, it's just like, think of how labor intensive that really is. And you mentioned the earlier the concept of shopping and choosing something off the shelf. And as SLPs, we have to remember, um, audiologists too, (laughs) but I get used to always talking to SLPs just because of what I do. Um, We have to remember that we what we're taking off the shelf in our field, what we're buying is usually information. And the range in quality is wide. The range in price is sometimes absurdly wide. And oddly enough, the two, quality and price, seem to be pretty unrelated to one another in our field. And it ends up being really difficult for clinicians to make these decisions. And the decisions we're making aren't just for ourselves and our own personal preferences. Like, we're not choosing among protein shakes or handbags here, where, like, you really do just get to choose your own adventure and choose what works best for you, choose what you want. No, we're making choices for our clients. And that's a very different and difficult thing. May I make a suggestion to address what that good point you made once I let you make it? (laughs) You're so nice. You're like, the point I was trying to make is. (laughs) 
which is so in line with our personalities. I'm just like charging ahead. You're like, well, if you would let me finish. Uh, okay. I think Dunning-Kruger is at play there. And I feel like I just want to read what it is because I want to make sure I get it right because we've said it before, but we have not articulated clearly. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which low ability individuals suffer from illusory superiority, mistakenly assessing their ability as much higher than it really is. Dunning and Kruger attributed this bias to a metacognitive inability of those of low ability to recognize their ineptitude and evaluate their ability accurately. And they go on to say that people in this category, the low competence category, do not seek disconfirmatory evidence. All people think they're more skeptical than they actually are. And people think Dunning-Kruger is about everyone else and not themselves. To me, that's the biggest part. Everyone's like, oh my God, don't you hate the strong and wrong people? But they're never that person. Dunning-Kruger is active in each and every one of us and we should all have a Greek chorus because we need to have some dissent. And here's where I think it's at play with what you said. As we said before, in order to be a business owner, like we are, you have to take some risks. And putting up capital is ultimately a big risk. In fact, you could argue it's a direct way, it's more direct than the things that people put up in other worlds. What do you put up as a clinician? Your license is on the line. So ultimately it ends up in money, not directly, but it ultimately eventually flows down to money. When you talk about a professor who doesn't get good teaching evals and doesn't get tenure, they won't have a job. What does it end up with? It flows eventually down to money. A scientist who doesn't get grants, that's about money. They might not see the cash in their hands, but if they get access to resources because money happened from some institution to their institution, the institution gave it to them and they got to use those funds. So ultimately, we have a more direct connection with money. So we have more reasons to jump to the let's the point of sale faster, which means we have to jump a lot of steps, don't we? So I would argue that we have a tendency when we're in this world, because I see myself putting on the different hats. When I'm working, working with a student on a paper, I'm a very different person than I'm working with like Rinky on our step product. I'm like, get it on the website now. They need to see this now. But I'm not like, hurry up and throw that publication out there. It's not poorly written. I'm like, no, 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 no. We need to spend another month on this paper. Like I will hold it back, right? But the issue is when you put on the business hat, what happens is, you take the risk of being a, have the illusory superiority because you have to, it's part of the gig. You can't, you can't, in fact, they say that perfection is the enemy of profitability. And if you end up spending time on these details like you can in science and put out one mega paper in JAMA that like you can, you can eat off of for three, three more years, you can't do that in business, right? And so what ends up happening is you may have moments where people like us have our low, we're in the low end of Dunning because we know we all vary and you have a highly competent SLP who wants to ask a question, but, and they, they, they actually think they're more likely to question themselves and say, I don't know, do I really know this? Because that's the dichotomy, low competent, high confidence, high confident, high confidence, sorry. And then you have your low confidence, high competence. So let's say there's a highly competent, but low confident clinician who wants to ask me a question about a product. Let's forget about me, just a person, a prominent person, anybody um, on Facebook about, hey, you know, I, I just kind of feel like maybe so-and-so, they risk a lot by asking those questions. Because even though they're at that point, the person who should be skeptical 
things are against them to ask that question and out themselves as an individual to a business because there's a lot of potential consequences that could be negative for them. And people want you to believe. So you have the business owner and all the people who believe in this product that you have to account for. And I think that's perhaps happening in the background for all of us. Oh, for sure. For sure. And we've talked in previous episodes about how SLPs engaging in peer coaching with one another, so giving each other tips and advice and such, can be a beautiful thing, but can also go south really fast if people disagree with one another in a way that embarrasses each other or minimizes each other's clinical skill set. But uh, you know what's even worse than that is when an SLP disagrees with or challenges a business owner because accidentally poking at someone's pride and pissing them off is one thing, (laughs) but poking at someone's pride plus their livelihood, ooh, that's like one of the (laughs) fastest ways for a conversation to just get absolutely like hot and extremely contentious is when someone, you know, says, in this course or, you know, on this website, I have a question about this because, you know, from what I know, I thought it was this way, but da, 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 like those conversations get really hot really fast and litigious really fast, which is... An, That's another point. Yeah, <laughs> which is another thing that I didn't realize until I was a business owner, just how litigious business owners are. Like, holy crap, I had to get an attorney, like a personal attorney who I consult with regularly for the informed SLP very early on in my business because like the business world moves fast and hard and everything is constantly about, you know, like (laughs) selling your product as fast as you can so that you don't lose a ton of- It's about optics all the time. Yes. uh, Yeah. It's about optics all the time. And so that's another kind of terrifying thing is um, I've seen SLPs talk about misinformation in our field and end up getting served cease and desists over it as well, which is, you know, crazy. Which, which serves a different purpose. It's more of a scare tactic, isn't it? Yeah. But you don't get that in the clinical world. You don't get that in the science world. You don't, you know, you don't get that because they, you know, the tort act, at least when I was at the NIH, means you have to sue the government. You can't sue an individual. So there's always a huge, and in fact, it probably means, so let's, let's take this in the other way around. Now, let's think about this. Because let's say there's a professor who's putting out shit, Right. Well, let's let's talk about people who've actually had their papers revoked and there's a lot of concern about what they've done. So the Lancet pulled away the anti-vaccination paper that they published. Of course, the effect is there now. Right. Whatever people believe or don't believe. I'm not interested in that debate per se. But the idea that that data was questioned so much that they ended up pulling it because they found that there were problems, huge problems with those data you still don't sue that person because they were under the umbrella of an institution. The institution gets the blame for that. So that means that your propensity to misbehave technically could be higher when you have the institution to take care of you. But it also means that the institution controls you, right? 
when you're in the business world and you're working for yourself, you often eat what you kill. Yeah, you're off on your own. Exactly. So if you caught a moose and you're eating for days, you're eating for days. But on the other hand, if you didn't, you're starving. And so you tend to see more erratic behavior there, thus the cease and desist, because you can. You, can, you can't ask your university, can you please say that person's been mean to me? And they said stuff on Facebook about my research paper. In fact, we set people up at scientific meetings. We set a microphone up after every talk so people can get screamed at about how shit their work was. <laughs> right, right. It's just part of it. Mm -hmm. we, uh, you cannot have a cease and desist in that world. And clinicians have malpractice insurance to protect themselves against things that are beyond reasonable question. Like, I felt like she said my name wrong. Okay, for fuck's sake, come on. You know, you're not getting a malpractice thing for that, right? And in fact, malpractice is far different in like OBGYN worlds where, you know, you were talking about babies being born and the, and the emotional connection there versus other worlds like speech pathologists. Like the risk associated with their job is so much less <laughs> than OBGYNs and, and the consequences, the emotional trauma, et cetera, that is reflected in the malpractice insurance. But you're so right. Legalities exist everywhere. They just operate under different um, circumscribed uh, rules depending on the environment you're in and how likely it is that an industry will fall versus a person. Yeah, SL SLPs are often too afraid of like a parent suing or something like that, you know, over their practice. But we actually, did you know, fun fact, SLPs have some of the cheapest insurance out there because they're almost never sued. They're almost never sued. Ooh, ooh let me ask you this. We had a podcast called SLP So Female. Um, and in fact, SLP So White, do you think that has anything to do with not so much the low risk of what they do, but also do you think white females who are very nice are less likely to be sued? Do you think if we had more hard charge in males or something like that, that they that people might be like, ah, I'm going to go after that person because I, I don't care if they have a response that's like, I don't know what the response would be. Absolutely. We'd have to look at another field that has similar risk and different demographic makeup to know. Like, because if veterinarians get sued more, I mean, like, okay, there's definitely something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's mostly about money. Like, I feel like the patterns they don't think we don't make it think we no, don't make seriously. any <laughs> like like it doesn't make sense to sue someone oh, who has no money usually and I don't think our salaries are high enough you know and is that because there's uh fe more females well that's a whole other episode <laughs> <laughs> go to down the hatch to listen to that episode <laughs> yeah it's true it's true it's true yeah <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you're saying you're saying a lot of things here that have so much relevance. And so then I guess my question for you is how do we bring this back to being in charge of your brain? How do we get in charge of your brain? And here's what I often say. I say you have to walk into circumstances. This is, oh, I think we're coming back to being self-aware. <laughs> you have to know what your biases are. People do this in other aspects of their life. People know that they're going to have, um, they're going to have a bad day. So they're going to eat a lot of ice cream. Like, oh, do not bring home ice cream. I've had a fucked up week. Or they know they're going to shop on Amazon because so-and-so. Or I tend to get in relationships with people who are users. And I know that I draw them to me because blah, 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 blah. So people do this in so many aspects of their life where they're willing to look at the trends and what they do. I just don't think that speech pathologists and audiologists have been encouraged to look at the trends in their behaviors in the same way, which would be to declare your biases up front. Raise your hand and say, I tend to get duped by this, but not by that. Why? Because frankly, I'm just 
poorly trained in this area, but I have a job where I have these expectations and I'm afraid to raise my hand and say, I don't know. So I use the device everybody's using because they can't say it's just me. And to me, that is such an amazing self-discovery to even get that far that you then have given yourself the permission to skew away from your current patterns because you at least understand what you're doing. Oh, 100%. That's a really good point that I had never thought of before. The fact that professionally as clinicians, rarely do we look at our biases and how they impact what we're doing, (laughs) what we're consuming, how we're treating our clients, basically our entire practice. Yeah. And yeah, all of us have certain, you know, like some people tend to be highly drawn to really like beautiful things. I was talking to a course producer the other day who he's pretty new in terms of creating um, CEU courses. And he was like, I never realized how drawn clinicians are to like really beautiful, like cute graphics. And he was like, so like, here's what my presentation looked like before I SLP'd it up. And now here's what it looks like (laughs) after. He's because I was like, I've started to learn that that's what ends up getting people really excited about stuff, you know? And that's what Summer said in the last podcast where she's like, do we have to bitmoji the heck out of our day right now? Right. It's not so much on the medical end. Um, And in fact, there is more of a push to not have things be too pediatric pediatric because it can be insulting to an adult who's just trying to find their way back to regular to regular life and you're showing in like this child picture so I think we skew away from that but we don't skew away from fun and certainly not well maybe we don't sexual content but there are just some relievers that we need that are different I think but I do get your point that it's almost it's memeville maybe it's beauty and kidsy and cutesy or maybe it's fun and fast and interesting on one end yeah everybody's gonna have trends in where they tend to go for information what they're most drawn to and kind of like where they're cutting corners like everybody has to be cutting corners somewhere it's like what are your corners you know like what are your corners and and how do you justify them are good good point what where do you cut your corners why do you cut your corners there and can you be variable to the extent and frequency that you do it once you understand the impact of it maybe you cut corners in areas where it's not really that detrimental and it helps you to be really competent in another place that is so much more valuable then that makes a lot of sense but can you modulate when you realize okay now it's really cutting away at this thing that i've been avoiding and i actually have to attend to that again being more self-aware and you know i think there are people who don't want to change what they're doing And we may never make great friends out of that group, (laughs) but I, I, yeah, it's, it's okay because I know that people who even listen to podcasts like this, they're not listening to us to say, good job. You did it all right. Yay you. Right. (laughs) So if you're already listening, you're probably someone's like, yeah, tell me how fucked up the world is. I mean, the title of our podcast, we're like, nobody knows shit and you're not in charge of your own brain. (laughs) You don't listen to that to hear you're amazing and you've got total control of your brain. And most, and I think a lot of people, like there's like little adjustments that you can make because a lot of the decisions that we're making as clinicians, like don't fit into like a right, wrong bucket. Like, oh, you're going here for your information. That's right versus wrong. Like for example, you know, like Facebook groups, say you have like a favorite, like two or three Facebook groups uh, where you go and ask questions of fellow SLPs, going and asking questions of colleagues with in the context of social media, whether it's, you know, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, is not like a smart 
or poor choice in and of itself. But once what you do, once you get there and how you either are highly aware of ways in which you could accidentally kind of head down the wrong path because of your own shortcuts and biases or be more likely to be able to kind of sift through and find the, you know, gems that are actually going to help you requires this type of awareness about where things can go wrong. So I'm trying to think of some like ways in which things can go wrong, like on social media that SLPs tend to disregard. SLPs tend to watch for patterns of likes on things in order to figure out what the correct response is. So I've noticed this before where, you know, you've got this thread Somebody says something that resonates with people that's like an answer to a question or a recommendation for what to do with a client or whatever. And as soon as it starts to hit a certain threshold, whereas there's like five or six likes, what everybody else around them is doing is looking at that and saying, oh, this comment has six likes, but all the other comments have only one or two. Therefore, the six like comment must be the right answer. So I'm going to click like two because then it signals that I too know what the correct answer is and I'm on board with this. And that question might, or that answer might be like slightly off. It might be totally right. It might be egregiously wrong, but then it compounds it, right? Because then you've got this like bandwagon effect where then suddenly there's like 15 likes on this comment as opposed to, you know, one or two for all the others. And then just, it's done. It's done. Like, that is the answer. <laughs> well, Instagram Instagram got rid of the numbers of likes altogether, apparently, because there was so much psychological trauma associated with that, that you you have to go through and count. And they know we're too lazy for that, which is why we're on social media. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's a shortcut. You know, like a really, like a, a totally reasonable shortcut is like, ask your friends. And there's nothing like that makes it like, you know, this this existed 30 years ago too, you know call your friend, you know, like phone the SLP who everybody says is the really good one and ask her what she would do, you know, like. I would also say the opposite is true, which is not the opposite, but another area where people shouldn't get all their information is frankly the literature. And the reason is, I mean, this has happened to me where my dissertation happened to focus on the effects of electrical stimulation on the immediate effects on the hyoid and larynx position in healthy adults. That already should tell you it is so highly controlled that you have to calm down based on the results. And to this day, I mean, I have had so many other grants and papers suggesting other things about the same technique. But for some reason, people keep saying, oh, right, because you don't like Eastim, right? I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> what the heck? I, well, you said, well, you said it pulls the larynx down, so you don't like it. I'm like, oh, my God. Did you read the end of the paper? Where I said it could perhaps be a nice rehab technique where you have actually tethered the larynx and they have to learn how to oppose it with some kind of. Oh, you said, yes, I did, in fact. But it doesn't matter. I'm the person who, quote, doesn't like Eastim, right? And to me, anyone who can come to that conclusion based purely on, well, that's what the paper said, so she doesn't like it, is almost as prone to the people as the people who look for the number of likes, right? And to me, it's just because it's more controversial. That's all. If that paper came out, if the paper keeps coming out in different labs in different ways saying, yeah, 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 it goes down. No one's saying they don't like it. I was just the first person to be the first author on a paper that said it. So I'm, I was the first one to say it. So it's just like the same thing as if you want to make an impact, when you see a really controversial post, that's major, major, ooh, this, these comments are going to be amazing. Be the first one to say whatever it is. You'll get the most likes, especially if it's really good. 
then 20 people down who've said it 20 times, they don't get the same number for likes. Cause he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy upsets the first guy already said that. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is also why business owners are always constantly in this frantic, like, you know, race to be first to get this thing, you know, taken care of or out or whatever. Same with science. Yeah. Yeah. Science, science is the same way. I, yeah, I, that's where I learned the word, you know, scooped early on. This was the first, this was the first study, the first line of a lot of discussions. This was the first study to show blah, 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 blah. Because we have to click a box saying, is this original science or is it a review of other people's work? You don't have that many options. It's either new or it's old. So anyway, I, I think that we have covered some interesting ideas that neither answer questions uh, nor, uh, but should hopefully pose a lot of questions. I think they answer general question I general dispositions or ideas, like this idea that we think we're running the ship and sometimes the ship is on autopilot going a little to the left. And every now and again, we tug at this, uh, you know, the stern or the steer and say, ah, maybe you should go over here. The winds are changing. But mostly we're on autopilot and we, sometimes that's okay. Uh, sometimes we have to trust things around us. There's no way we can be, you know, the people who are at the tip top of every area we're going to interact with, Right. There's no way to be an expert in everything, but there certainly should be a little bit more skepticism in areas that we want to grow in. That, I think, is the final point. If you say you want to grow in this area, then you should be a bit more skeptical about things because that's where growth comes. And I also would say that we have to be careful in not creating the memes within our own field on accident. It's one thing for like, something to be put out there that maybe isn't ideal for our field or our clients, but then it's another when SLPs scoop it up and tell other people that they should do it too. And so we have to recognize our own role in kind of like spreading, spreading trends within our field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But how do we know that we're a part of that? Don't share shit unless you've read it. <laughs> Maybe oh, that. Are you, stuff <laughs> like stuff you like that. Read. Yeah. You know. Oh, so what about the people who say haven't read it yet, but seems good? <laughs> yes. That's what I'm talking about, where it's like, you know, suddenly like this bit of information or this idea or this technique will just go wild in our field and it'll stay around for years and years and years and years. And it's because people didn't slow down when, enough when they were consuming it. Instead, they just shared it or participated in the elevation of it. So like participating in the elevation of it is also like, you know, amplifying it for other clinicians. Yeah. But don't you think that that's impossible on social media in the same way it's impossible in real life where you might say, hey, did you hear that the uh, grocery store down there got robbed? Right. And then you tell your You don't even know if it's you. true. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh totally. my God, what got robbed? The grocery store got robbed. No, the first thing was, did you hear it? Next it got robbed. It's like, well, what? I don't know. I don't know who did it, but they said it happened. Now that person says, well, you know, so-and-so got robbed. And it, it may, no one probably got robbed or maybe it was old news or, you know, it could have been an, a different grocery store. Somebody got robbed, but we do it all the time. So clicking a button and not being responsible to say something to somebody face-to-face -face is so much easier than just clicking the share button. And sometimes a share button is just, hey, did you hear so-and-so? And you're looking for confirmation. You're not even sharing it as an authority. So I question the extent to which we're going to be able to resist that urge. Um, I would at least say, please read it first. At least read the thing that you're sharing as gospel truth, right? 
and just read it. Before you participate in this chain yeah. of information traveling. And the clickbait, uh-huh. as they say, clickbait, yeah. Uh-huh. So Meredith, do you think that there's any way for people to not just be involved in a marginal way so we talked about be skeptical don't just share information without knowing what it is but what about having more power and instead of just saying i just don't want to be duped why not say not only do i not want to be duped i actually want to be more in charge of the way i process information even if it's if it's separate from what the masses think like i don't want to be sheeple so what what's an idea do you that that we could probably put out there To me, one of the ways that we protect ourselves most is ensuring that we always have power in the situation to have the conversations that we want to have and to be able to ask the questions that we want to ask Um, and to not give away too much of our power so that conversations become overwhelmed by a limited number of sources. So an example of this we always come back to social media, but it's a it's a it's it's the top way that information travels in our field. It really is because even though there's a lot of SLPs that don't use social media, the ones who are using it are usually the ones who are peer coaching live in their workplace. But anyhow, one example of this would be like um, I admin several different Facebook groups, and this is something that I didn't realize until I became an admin of a Facebook group is how much control admins have over the content that exists within the group. So there are, I'm just going to throw out a guesstimate here, but I would say there's probably only 40 SLP Facebook groups that have over three to 5,000 members of of them, right? So like, it's a fairly limited number of places where people are getting their information. And it's common for th- for people to think that information travels freely on the internet, that like, you know, you can ask any question you want, you know, anything can be discussed, like anything can be on the table. But the reality is that anything is not on the table because in some groups, certain conversations are censored and blocked from being had because Facebook group admins have the power to just quietly delete anything they want to. Like, for example, in my Facebook groups, I don't do this, but if I wanted to, I could get into pediatric SLPs right now and I could systematically delete comments that I didn't want to be there. I could systematically delete posts that I didn't want to be there. And really, I have a ton of control over the conversation. And so that's just one example of a situation in which SLPs being unaware of how information actually travels within our field can unknowingly kind of like allow the power to be taken away from them to the point at which sometimes it can kind of like spiral out of control and get out of hand where it can't be undone, where you have, you know, like a very large group that talks about, um, you know, a specific topic, but the the fact that this one topic can never be discussed just doesn't even get a chance to be brought up because it's just deleted from existence. So what you're saying, Meredith, is that information can be censored by speech pathologists? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because really people talk about the powers that be, like they'll go from liberal news to conservative news and how they'll twist the same story. If the story is big enough, they both have to talk about it, but they'll put their spin on it. And there'll be others where they just won't even act like the story happened. So you're talking about... That and that's really interesting to me, which is rather than you here's my, you know, my I guess 
being a scientist and being more confrontational in nature, which is I don't own any of these groups that have, you know, all these people. I tend to just post on them. But what's really interesting is that if I did own one of them, I assume that there would be people who sell a product that I don't feel great about or have a disposition. It can sometimes be somebody saying, hey, um, I use XX therapy on this patient. They were amazing. And they're not selling anything, but they kind of are because everyone's like, oh, my God, tell me about that. It's like, oh, my God, stop saying that. Right. I would rather get on there and have the conversation rather than being threatened and just delete it because I think you give power. Because what has happened from to people I know who've been in those situations, people keep messaging them and saying, how come I never see any of your stuff on X post? You're so relevant to that group. And none of, every time I search X thing, it never pops up. Well, that should tell you the answer without telling you the answer. Right, right. It's like, how is it possible that there is an athletic store and they don't have any Nike there? How is it possible that iTunes doesn't sell any of Prince's music? Like, it has to be that there's some kind of legal problem or some barrier to them either being allowed to do it. And it's usually not the business owner going and deleting their post because they want their name out. It's probably the opposite, which is their stuff's getting deleted um, instead of the person jumping on and having a conversation and changing minds through the slow burn everyday work. That is, I there is data that refutes that. Let's talk about that, too. It's just they don't have to see it. And I think they can do that to a group of people who aren't as willing to to be skeptical, not everybody, but for those people who are just like, oh, I didn't see it there, or I did see this and I didn't see that, so I'm going to go with the one I saw. It's like, you should question why stuff isn't there. Don't just question why you see so much of one business. Like I said before, there are products that are high quality that I know people don't know about because they're just not that good at marketing. Yeah. And that's exactly what I mean. As SLPs, we don't have control over what is being shown to us. We don't have control over what's being shown to us. I mean, take a second to think about how scary that really is. Like Facebook group admins can create whatever reality they want, which is super cool if you're a Facebook admin and have some goal you're trying to achieve. But from the consumer's perspective or from the clinician's perspective, it's like, holy crap, I want to go to a group to learn about a topic. And I want to genuinely learn about the topic and all bits and pieces of it, not consume someone else's agenda. But the latter is pretty prevalent. So when we look at the landscape of all the things that we could, you know, choose from, consume, learn, try, consider for our clients, you have to be aware that somebody else is the, you know, puppet master. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of puppet masters behind, you know, the curtain and they're, you know, they're showing you which puppets they want you to see. And it happens across every single social media platform. So it happens on Instagram too, where you'll like have a page on a topic, but because the person who runs that page thinks a certain way about a certain thing, they'll systematically delete commentary that questions that or that presents otherwise. Yeah. So what you're saying is we all have puppet masters, but sometimes you can decide which strings you want to take off and which strings are okay to leave, right? Yeah. Because we can't take it off all complete, completely. I mean, if you really think you know what's going on in the U.S. government because you consume all the news, there's a whole lot of stuff you're not, you, you're not going to know about. Anyone who thinks they know everything there is to know about what's going on right now can't be really aware of what's going on right now. <laughs> um and in fact, and in fact, you can take that and say, how is it possible that two news groups can say exact opposite things about the same thing? There's something that 
both sides don't want you to know. And any argument that is so diametrically opposed that they can find no middle ground, you need to be skeptical, skeptical about both sides and don't cling to one or the other. There has to be some truth. If it's that controversial and that important, there can't be all truth on one side and all lies on the other. Yeah, so I guess the take-homes are be aware of your own cognitive biases. Know that your biases will affect how you consume information. And this applies to you no matter who you are and what your job is. So whether you're an SLP, audiologist, scientist, business owner, whatever. But regardless... The information that you're consuming also often has biases. It's also most often put out there by businesses who are marketing that information. And one of the core principles of marketing is to tap into using those cognitive cognitive biases, um, yours in particular, if you're the core, if you're the primary consumer of this business. Um, And so... Also, just know that this is happening probably far more than you realize. And the fact that this is one of the big things that so heavily shapes clinical practice and what we do with our clients isn't unique to our field. It's in all health education medical fields. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Um, And it also is neither good nor bad. It's both incredibly wonderful um, how good information can travel among people in our field and also sometimes not so wonderful when something travels that really just needs to not (laughs) because it's not beneficial to our clients or our field. Um, But our job is to just be aware of it. All right, Puppet Master 101. I think we're done Oh, done <laughs> Here's that clip that Ianessa mentioned earlier from The Devil Wears Prada. And then Cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when, in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room.